0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there is no question Ontario's public health care system is strained, but is the Ford government's plan actually going to help or hurt the situation? David Moskrop, political theorist and columnist with the Washington Post, will join us to talk about that. And we analyze the week in provincial and federal politics with John Best from the Bay Observer. And how is organized crime selling homes without the owner's knowledge? Yes, it is happening. That's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. More feedback about uh, what's going on in healthcare here. There's a new poll that was released today. 86% – this was a national poll – 86% uh, say they're very, very concerned about what's happening in the healthcare system in their particular province. And, of course, that's it. Uh, that goes for us here in Ontario as well uh, because of some of the proposed changes that the Ford government has suggested and is, is enacting, I guess, as we actually talk. Uh, Ontario is expanding public health or private health delivery rather uh, by funding procedures about well, things like cataract surgeries, MRI, CT scans, etc. cetera. Uh, Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones says the plan will help eliminate the pandemic backlog of procedures by March. And she says the government can't accept the status quo. Here's the minister.
1: We need to be bold, innovative and creative. We need to build on the spirit of collaboration on display across the healthcare sector. We need to have the courage to look to other provinces and countries and borrow the best of what the world is already doing.
0: Okay, bold and innovative, I think a lot of us can agree on. Uh, But is this the best system? Um, A lot of people don't think so. There's a a fascinating op-ed piece uh, that appeared uh, recently in the Washington Post that uh, talks about this too. The author is uh, David Moskrop, who is a political theorist and columnist in the Washington Post, and also the author of Too Dumb for Democracy. And uh, David Moskrop joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. David, good morning. Thank you for the time
2: today. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk a little bit about this. I read with great interest what you wrote in the in the post the other day, and it's echoing, I think, a lot of the concerns about this. And one of the phrases that jumped out at me from your piece uh, is what you uh, characterize as the financialization of the medical system. Maybe explain that to our listeners.
2: Sure. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know, this is a privatization of the system. And, and that's true in the sense that it's sending money to the private sector. That said, the the system now is full of instances of, of private health care that's publicly funded, right? So the important distinction is this. Um, the, the care itself is funded through a public insurance scheme. That's o- OHIP. Yep. But mm-hmm. it's delivered privately. Hospitals are private. They're private, not for profit. Your GP is private. right? It's a, probably a... Small business run by a doctor or a handful of of doctors. Uh, This is uh, slightly different because it's uh, sending more money to for-profit private entities whose goal is to turn a big profit. Uh, And that turns healthcare into not a public good. But a financial instrument, like an investment, essentially. Like you would have an investment in a stock or a bond or a GIC or whatever, or you know, you'd buy stocks on the market. And you're gonna get big players moving into the space to try to financialize healthcare to return a profit, which means that they're either going to try to upsell you on things probably, or scale and run a lean mean machine. And I guess the question is, do you really want your healthcare delivered with someone who's running around trying to make a quota to maximize profits?
0: And I know that you know there's going to be pushback on this we've debated it as you might expect a a lot on this program over the last couple of weeks and the pushback about ups, upsizing and up, up upselling is well yeah that happens in, in this system too well it does but but uh but there are there are ceilings on how much they can charge and it's usually regulated in private clinics it's my understanding david that, that there is no ceiling it's up to the individual owner who of the of the the clinic to to charge whatever they want for the the upselling
2: well yeah and there are limits in the sense that you know I, I talked to some folks about this to try to get a real understanding of what the what the proper risk was and you know the, you can't pressure patients into unnecessary care um you know unnecessarily there are there are uh, oversights and there is a body that that is meant to To police that. Uh, Mm -hmm. That said, um, there's still room to sell patients on more things. So, you know, you can't turn, as one doctor said to me, you can't like, you know, charge for the gown, right? Yeah. Uh, You can't charge like a waiting room fee. Um, But when people are in there, you can say, well, you know, here, uh, do you want this, you know, upgraded cataract lens, which is a practice that exists now. But in a private sector uh, for profit, there is a greater incentive to try to push these things because the goal is profit. The goal isn't, um, you know, delivering the best care possibly uh, under the circumstances. So the concern is you get, you know, unnecessary pushing of these things or you get say longer stays in the clinic that you would otherwise wouldn't have in a public, you know, in the public system is like, well, we want to get you out of here when you're ready to go in a private system as well. Maybe we want to add, you know, a day or two to jack up the the billing, which is something that can happen. And it's, you know, it is policed, but it's hard to police a significant number of clinics if there aren't you know, enough inspectors and enough resources going into policing it.
0: As uh, the province was making their announcement and trying to roll this out, uh, both the health minister and the premier said, well, look, this is going on in other parts of the world. It's happening in other parts of Canada. Uh, so why shouldn't we be doing this? So you've done some research on that, especially with the, the British Columbia model. Uh, tell us what you found out.
2: Yeah, so I, you know, when I when I set out to write the piece, my goal was to try to understand what was really happening for for better or for worse. And and you're right, uh, this is a model that has been adopted elsewhere, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Quebec, uh, British Columbia. Uh, Saskatchewan is interesting, for instance, because they saw their wait times initially go down uh, quite a bit and then go back up. So the the sort of expansion of for-profit care was did help, but it wasn't a panacea, and things kind of went back. Uh, in British Columbia, they did something similar, and they found that it led to uh, unlawful billing. So there was, uh, you know, drain on on the public purse, and care wasn't necessarily better, um, and wait times again weren't uh, improved drastically. And they're kind of now reinvesting in the public system again after that a period of time. And in uh, around the world, one of the things that is found. Uh, In the United Kingdom, for instance, and in the United States, for-profit hospitals have a higher uh, probability of morbidity and mortality than public uh, or or not-for-profit hospitals. Not 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 significant. Not like you know, it's not like you've got a nine to ten chance of not walking out. But it's slightly higher, uh, which is of note. And the and the final point is, Ontario has its own experience with moving to for-profit care in um, long-term care, and we saw what happened. And one of the findings through, during the pandemic was if you were in a in a private long-term care facility, you had a higher chance of dying from COVID than if you were in a public one or a not-for-profit one.
0: Uh, and yeah, we've analyzed that inside out and sideways too. I mean, you know, the uh, the, the level of care, the, the buildings themselves, et cetera, there's a whole lot of factors involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also quoted uh, a doctor that I had read extensively about too, Dr. Bell. Uh, who's uh, been very vocal and opinionated about this and suggesting that uh, there's a lot of money on the table here for this, that the province is intending to direct, as you mentioned, to the private sector. Uh, But we could do that in the public sector and probably have a much better uh, return on investment for that money.
2: Well, exactly. And, you know, I spoke to a handful of doctors and and, uh, nurses and uh, folks when I was trying to put this piece together. and, And one of the things that that I took away from it is was there are solutions here that are innovative that aren't for profit. And as as Dr. Bell argues, one of them is, yeah, do community surgery centers that are specialized centers. They're sure. efficient. They're designed to do exactly these sorts of things. Like this is the cataract surgery center. This is the hip replacement center. This is the knee replacement center. Uh, and Dr. Daniel Raza agrees. He's a family physician and a U of professor um but but have these community centers run on a not-for-profit basis as ho- extensions of hospitals and and they're, they're affiliated with hospitals uh they're not for profit they do the same sort of thing they're efficient they're uh, specialized uh, and their data shows us that they're actually very good at doing this and they get folks in and out safely and quickly but they're not under the for-profit financialized pressure that a that a you know, a chain location would be. So you can still get the same goods, but, but without the, the costs. Uh, the problem is, you know, the public has to pay for that up front. So there's a big capital investment. And my sense is the Ford government wants that to be a private equity investment rather than a public one. But I don't think that's worth the money.
0: Well, and that's the question I think a lot of us are asking right now is, yeah, okay, there's a capital expense to put the building up there. But uh, by the way, most hospitals do fundraising to try to assist in that cost. Uh, we have an example of that in Hamilton, of course. Uh, there's, there's St. Joseph's Hospital downtown, which has been here forever back in the 1800s. But about 20, 25 years ago, they built a, a, a center at the east end of the city. And it's it's day surgeries and everything else. As a matter of fact, just about anybody I know that said cataract surgery in the last little while has had it there. And you were in and out and, you know, home for dinner and that sort of thing. It's a very effective... Effective way to do it. I, I, and I, as I read Doctor Bell's article and your article in the post, you got to ask yourself, why aren't we doing that? I mean, that's that's that system that's already in place. So, you know, it, the system needs a lot of help, but that's simply because governments haven't been as innovative as they probably could be.
2: Yeah, I've never met a single person who looks at the healthcare system in this province or pretty much anywhere in this country and says, "Oh, this is fine, this is working." <laughs> I think we all collectively agree that this is not working, and something's got to be done but you get a sense that the government has uh, neglected the system either deliberately you know either they've neglected or vandalized it to the point where the only solution seems to be to bring in the for-profit private side and that's not the only solution and it's not just the the provincial government at fault here the federal government
0: mm-hmm.
2: um has been uh, you know underfunding healthcare for some time and downloading that responsibility since uh, since the 1990s increasing to the provinces uh, there's been trade-offs. You know, they trade off tax points to try to make up for it, but in general the takeaway is the system's underfunded at two levels of government. But um, it, it can be fixed if you're willing to put the money in. But, uh, but it also falls to Canadians and to Ontarians to want to put the money in. We've we've got to want to invest in this system and say, like, look, when we pool all of our money through taxes and fund this thing, we get better care for everyone, including ourselves. And if we don't pay it uh, at that end, we're going to pay more on the other end when it's private care. And I'll give you an example. The government introduced Bill 124 and said, okay, here's the deal. You can't increase uh, you know, uh, salaries more than 1% for public employees. That includes nurses. In theory, it's to save money. Then they turn around. What do they do? Nurses say, well, to, to heck with this. I'm going to a private nursing agency where I'm going to get more money, and the agency makes more money, and they bill the province a higher amount than they would have had if the nurses had been paid as a public employee. <laughs> yeah. So it ends up costing you more. Um. And, and and this is where people like me say, well, if you just invest in the system properly, you'd actually save money in the long run. Everyone would. But instead, we're returning to for, uh, for-profit care where it's going to cost us all more in the end.
0: I And I'm I'm sure you've heard the, you know, the, the premier's idea that, you know, he's loosening the restrictions now. So, you know, somebody from Alberta or BC can come and work in Ontario. They still have to, you know, get their certification, but they can work while they're getting the certification. And I guess that's not a bad idea, but uh I mean, you know, what's the sales pitch here? Come to Ontario and make less money because, you know, that 1%, it's, I know, they, 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 you know, the courts have struck it down, but they're appealing it, as you mentioned in the article. Mm-hmm. So it's still out there.
2: Yeah, and, and I think you know part of the question is uh, this is one of the concerns with with moving to Private for profit care is it's going to cannibalize uh, nurses who are now and doctors who are now working in in public uh, spaces or in, in not for profit spaces because the private ones are going to offer you know better hours more regular hours you know they're not going to have to do uh, you know on calls and more money. And so that's going to f- pull folks away from the public system and, and the not-for-profit system, and then of course that pressure needs to be made up somewhere, and uh, or released somewhere, and that means you know either poaching people from other parts of the country, which incidentally just moves the crisis around, right? Sure. Because on balance, it's not like there's a surfeit of these folks, and they're just, oh, well, they're all in uh, Alberta, or they're all in Saskatchewan, like, oh, they're all in Newfoundland and Labrador. No, there's a, you know, across the country, there's a there's a lack of these folks. So you're just moving the crisis around. Uh, and the other side of it is is getting foreign-trained physicians and nurses accredited. And that's another challenge, and and the, there is a push to try to speed that up, but it's not going particularly uh, fast or particularly well. So there is, you know, there are solutions to this, and one of the things I, you know, was found when I was researching the article and talking to folks is there are solutions. There's a bunch of things you can do, and one of them is getting foreign trained folks through the system quickly. And right now that's not happening. So, you know, I I think at the end of the day, Ford's plan on the human resources side falls way short of it needs to be. And so this just isn't going to
1: work.
0: It's a thought-provoking piece. It's uh, in the uh, uh, WashingtonPost.com. You can check it out for yourself. David, thank you so much for uh, writing the piece. And uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us this
2: morning. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Take care. David Wascrop a contributing columnist with the Washington Post. (laughs) You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, you've been hearing uh, through the course of the week, uh, the Prime Minister and his cabinet were in Hamilton for a uh, retreat uh, where they talk policies. As a matter of fact, they're having another one of those sessions in Ottawa with the whole caucus. All the uh, Liberal MPs are going to be up there. Uh, but while he was in Hamilton, he had a meeting with Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath and, I, as usual, talked about a number of things per- pertinent to Hamilton's situation, including light rail transit. And of course, last year was the big announcement that the federal government was going to match the $1.7 billion investment that the province was going to make in LRT. So that's a whack of cash. And, uh it- One of the elements of this and one of the things that a lot of people have talked about to do with LRT is uh, including an affordable housing component to that. Well, the Prime Minister says that his government agreement to match that $1.7 billion investment made it clear, though, that when he's talking to the Mayor, that there had to be a role for affordable housing. Here's what the PM had to say.
2: Once we receive uh, an actual uh, business plan uh, and project plan from uh, the province on the LRT, uh, we will ensure that there is an appropriate proportion of affordable housing uh, built into those plans.
0: So, and again, that, this is still on the planning stage, but we're going to use that story to kick off our, our weekly session with John Best uh, about politics uh, provincially and federally and locally, of course, because the prime minister is here. John, of course, is the publisher of The Bay Observer. Uh, John, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Bill. John, I I don't know if you heard the conversation. I had Vito Scroo on yesterday, former mayoral candidate, of course, here in Hamilton, but Vito spent a lot of time on the other side of that uh, if you know infrastructure ontario and he was behind the scenes on that board there with a lot of the directions as i think a phrase i used yesterday is he, he knows how the sausage is made uh, you know not the the photo op announcements that the politicians make but how they get the money and where it's going to go etc and he's skeptical about this too because everybody says yeah there should be affordable housing but nobody's identified a funding source for that And that's kind of an important component isn't it it certainly is,
3: and, and uh, I, I think the, the one thing we do know is that not one nickel of the $3.4 billion will be earmarked towards affordable housing. That money will be spent on building the LRT system, and indeed, there's likely to be more money will have to be spent because of what's happened in the construction industry with uh, escalating costs. Uh, the, you know, it's it's really interesting. I, I think this whole housing issue is coming to a head a little bit. Uh, we saw a Council earlier this week uh, frustrated because the the tiny homes proposal uh, got kicked down the the road again. And and I think what is missing here, and I, I don't blame Council really, because first of all, we got a lot of new faces, and secondly, uh, when the federal government announced made the announcement that really made the LRT project a reality. Uh, the minister, uh, Catherine McKenna, very clearly stated that uh, affordable housing was going to be a condition. Uh, she used the word condition. Well, it turns out there is, there is no mechanism whatsoever to make it a condition. We got a transit project uh, and we got a housing issue and there's no place where they meet so I, I think we're, you know, there, there's sort of an impression that that somehow affordable housing is going to magically appear either through the efforts of the province or the feds. The reality is that our council is going to have to drive that bus or it isn't going to happen at all in any meaningful way. And, and they've still got time, but... Uh, it's going to have to be a council initiative because all this stuff about yeah we're going to make sure there the question that I would have liked to have asked the prime minister is who's got the file who in Ottawa right now is is working on the Hamilton affordable housing along the LRT project and I think what you'd find is that it's nobody and there's nobody at Queens Park working on it. So you know uh, it, this is it, this is going to have to it, it, be a maiden Hamilton solution.
0: Well, exactly, and it it kind of reminded me of the early discussion about LRT. This is going back years, over oh, twelve, fifteen years ago, when they started thinking about doing something like this, and we saw all these artists' drawings, right, of, of what LRT was going to look like in Hamilton, and it looked kind of nice. Oh, that's like, beautiful, clean track, and it was a little family about to get on the, you know, on the. Uh, on the LRT train, et cetera. Uh, the reality is it's, it's, you know, there are wires involved. There's digging up the ground involved. There's a lot of infrastructure below. It's, it's a messy proposal to get this thing built. And even while it's operating uh, and, and it's of the same ilk, it's just like, yes, affordable housing. Cause that's, that's the thing. All politicians are in favor of affordable housing these days. Sure they are, but nobody seems to want to pay for it and and that's that's the stumbling block right now uh if i don't see the provincial government kicking money in here i don't know that the federal government's going to kick money in here and as to, as to your point if it falls onto the hamilton city council to do this they have a shall i say less than stellar record when it comes to housing building it managing it etc uh and they don't have any money so so what's going to happen here well, I think there is money
3: available. Uh, the CMHC has uh, certainly will is is supporting um, you know kind of innovative housing projects, uh, which which brings me to another point, and that's this tiny housing, or tiny shelter situation. Um, I uh, I think Brad Clark uh, really hit the uh, the nail on the head at council this week. He said what I think a lot of people are thinking. And that is, if you can't get permission from the neighbors to put a uh, housing, a tiny housing uh, setup on the middle of Barton Street in Hamilton, you're not going to get it anywhere. And uh, I think really we've got to start looking at a different kind of shelter uh, because I think with these tiny housing, all you're really doing is replacing tents with shacks. And I think what we have to do is start looking at things like uh, modular housing, um, uh, mobile homes uh, and, you know I don't mean trailers necessarily, but I think that you know the prefabricated uh, type of housing you look at uh, you know if you go to uh, the the oil sands out west where there's no accommodation for the workers I mean they they're they're living in you know ATCO trailers that are made up as bunk houses. Uh, they can also have separate units with their own door. There's units that are that are like a wash house where people can clean up. There's uh, washrooms are contained in them. I think we have to start looking at stuff like that. I think there's a better chance of of a a setup like that if we can find a piece of public property uh, to locate them. I, you know, there, there's a, I just think we, you know, we want to feel good about things, but I, I think we have to be sensible as well. And, uh, I'm not sure uh, focusing all of our homeless issue around these tiny shelters is, is, is the right answer. I think we, I think we
0: need something with a little more substance to it. John, you've been watching this file, the LRT file from day one here and, and doing a great deal of analysis on this. My understanding is, and maybe you can confirm this is that, uh, a number of of these blocks that we're talking about here are now owned by the private sector people have been buying these things up i guess in anticipation of this thing ever getting built uh how do you part how do you get them to partner into this i mean if 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 you know Construction company A, or whatever investment company A owns this row of houses or this building or whatever, uh, they may have other plans besides affordable housing. So, it, it, you know, you got to find a spot for it here, first of all, don't you? And you, that, that's going to include a negotiation. And the answer might be no. So, where do you go then? Well, I, I think you're
3: absolutely right, uh, but but I think it, it begins, you know, before we say that there. Uh, my my sense is that obviously any private sector builder that owns a piece of property that uh, where they're planning on on putting in a rental or even a condo project, uh, it's not realistic to expect them to reduce uh, the how how they can maximize the value of that property. So. There, there's no incentive, unless it's a subsidy, for them to um, rent out apartments at, at 2000 a month if they can get 3000 a month. So, I, you know, but I think that conversation has to take place. And uh, we have a, a home homebuilders uh, association here in Hamilton. I don't know if anybody on council is, has talked to them um, and, and at least give them a chance to say if they do have a solution. But let's say there isn't really a solution with the private sector. Then I think the next step is we have to inventory every piece of publicly owned land anywhere near that route. And that may already have been done. But again, Bill, my main point is I think I think council has to establish uh, this as a priority. Uh, there will be money from senior governments. I'm quite convinced that uh, looking at the CMHC, website and looking at some of the programs. I think there is there is money available. What isn't probably available is the initiative to make this happen. This is a Hamilton problem and uh, council has to take the lead on this. And I think they've been led to believe that somebody else is
0: going to do it for them. Yeah. Well, don't hold your breath waiting for that to happen. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk you again soon. You too, Bill. Thanks. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show
3: podcast on 900 CHML.
0: This is a a rather frightening story if you're a homeowner, Uh, you know, under the guise of, hey, this could happen to you. I will give you the circumstances in a second. Uh, But organized crime has mortgaged or sold at least 30, 30, 30 GTA homes without the owner's knowledge. How could something like this happen? Let's talk a little bit about that with our next guest. Uh, She is Jennifer Quaid, an Associate Professor and Vice Dean of Research in Civil Law at the University of Ottawa. Professor, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Bill.
0: We've heard of housing scams and and frauds and et th- cetera. Uh, I've not heard of something like this before, and if it's, it's not happening once or twice uh, it, there's a very intricate plan that goes into place here where uh, a couple of people now have had their ho- their houses sold from right out from under them with no knowledge of it. How does something like this happen?
1: It is a a very startling thing to read about and I was uh, just as just as uh, shocked and and uh and worried as as uh, everyone else was. I think what's happening here is that um you know throughout unfortunately throughout the history of of uh of humanity there have always been uh those who've been motivated to find ways to exploit weaknesses and to find new ways to uh to, uh to trick people into into doing things that, when they don't realize it so i I think what we're seeing here is uh, you know a reinvention of of um of an old fraud but it's using new technology and i and i think that that's the probably the the part that uh that is uh is new now with uh identity theft and the ability to sort of go online and impersonate people and and with the reduction in the amount of uh, in-person contact we have with people, we don't always mm-hmm. know who we're dealing with, and we've we've come to rely on technology a lot, especially with um, with the pandemic having you know sort of accelerated our our need to rely and use on these technologies even for those who weren't as comfortable. And so I think that that's part of the story here is that it's easier to impersonate someone and get the ball rolling on things. And then of course these are fairly sophisticated um, stratagems, and they they rely on the fact that uh, most people believe the best in others and are not suspicious outright. I would add to that, and this is typical in fraud, they they do identify a profile of person um, that seems to be a a good target. And these tend to be people who are older or who maybe are not as uh, tech savvy. Also, people who might not always be in their home and, and those who've paid a good portion of their mortgage down. So, who are Whose houses are good good candidates for an for an extra mortgage or a new mortgage? So that's kind of a combination of factors, but I would say that's the that's what strikes me.
0: Yeah, if you mortgage to the hilt here, there's there's no benefit to them, is there? You know, if you that's say, right. hey, I'm gonna sell, I'm gonna sell, you know, the Smiths' house there, uh, well, you're you know, you, you get a thousand bucks out of it because the rest of it was all mortgaged. Uh, they, so they're looking for the, for maximum benefit here, and and as you say, it's all done, you know, without the, the owner's knowledge. Uh, and when i when i read about this professor i mean i I'm, I'm i'm a little skittish about doing any banking online or anything else and you know sending you know uh, computer information or credit card information around uh i may, i may be the last guy to actually jump into that cuz just what everyone else is doing it so and and that's really the i guess the basis for this isn't it is is very little human contact in this whole process uh, they get your information they get your banking information your mortgage information and they pretend that they're you uh, for all intents and purposes, and and you know the people who may want to buy the house after it's listed like that have no knowledge of it. They don't know any differently.
1: That's right, and I, I mean I think that that's that's uh, that's what's so insidious about it is that you know once you've successfully impersonated somebody, you can start creating scenarios that make it easy for you to reinforce if someone is is trying to check, you know, so you hire these people who look like the owners. And then, you know, once they tell a story that the person who thinks that they're visiting the house and looking at it will think, okay, these are the right people. And so if they, they will sort of discount any, any other information that might, uh, you know, say, hey, are these really the right people? So once they start building a story that's believable, the fraudsters, you know, people will tend to take it at face value unless they have, Strong reasons to disprove it, and that's because we just can't function. Most of us, as cynical as we've all become, most of us can't function just sort of dis- disbelieving everything we hear. We, it's it's very hard to live that way. And I would add that you know that the types of people who've been targeted, it would seem, are also those who who grew up in a in a world and in a time where you know you knew people and so you could mm-hmm. rely on who you were dealing with. And I I think that may be part of the issue here too is that the, there just isn't an awareness on the part of some of these homeowners that they're vulnerable um, because they just, they can't imagine how that, how they're, how they're being exploited and, and uh, impersonated through initially these online scenarios, but then that people have the audacity to hire, you know, fake occupants of the house. You know, it's, it's hard for us to imagine that the, the, the elaborate scheme that's there, but once it's in play, really hard for people to, to resist it.
0: It's it's kind of like identity theft on steroids, isn't it? I mean, you know, they're they're just taking it to the next level, a maximum level, and a very profitable level, I would think.
1: Yes, and I I think that the other thing that that may be uh, contributing to this, and we see this in other areas of fraud, um, you know, fraudsters are early adopters of technology. Because that's the, those are the moments when people haven't necessarily sharpened their their reflexes and they don't necessarily know how things work. I mean, we saw we saw that with telemarketing. You know, now everyone knows. You know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. But but there's but telemarketing still works. Why? Because there's a segment of people who just are lonely and like to talk on the phone. And I think that um, fraudsters in in this this mortgage scam that they're setting up know very well how to how to identify and use online tools to identify who they're looking for. And and that's that's something that we uh, we probably don't realize is that you know the things we say on Facebook the the things that we might uh, communicate to others will will give people an idea are are you home a lot oh your great uncle's in the hospital but he owns his home he's going to be gone for a couple of months you know these kinds of little details and if if you're in the business of fraud that's what you pay attention to so I think we all have to be aware of how much. How much less private a lot of our lives are and how that gives lots of grist uh, to the mill of, of fraudsters. And, and, you know, we, we can't live our lives, you know, in secret all the time. I think we just have to be more uh, savvy about, about how much information we let out there because everyone yeah, is a potential target at one point.
0: Well, exactly. And, and, you know, we've talked about that with the police officials over the past, you know, uh, about fraud and, and situations and well, you know, the old, the phrase used to be con man. In other words, they want to get your confidence, but, but they're, they're trolling. I mean, I, and I've seen this and I'm sure you have professor, you know, somebody will post on Facebook, you know, I off to Florida for six weeks now. I'll see you later. Well, you know, if, 9 not 99 out of 100 people would like to that so isn't that nice that they're going to Florida but there's somebody out there who's who's trolling right now trying to find a place that they want to break into or use or something like that so we need to be careful about what information we put out there don't we
1: Yeah I think that's right I think everyone just needs to develop some defensive habits and 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 you know if you are going to Florida obviously you can't keep it perfectly secret people at your office will know and your friends will know mm-hmm. but then make sure that you know there are measures being taken to to ensure that you know, someone's checking on your house or that you have, you know, have ways of of knowing whether things are happening. And, and that I think is, is maybe where, you know, the direction where this needs to go, particularly for homeowners who, who might fit the profile that these fraudsters are targeting, or if you are a family member or someone who cares for someone who, who owns their home, but maybe, you know, might need some support or help uh, making sure that they're, they're not taken in uh, by people because it, it is, it can be really have devastating consequences. Just, up until now, it seems like the situations have been able to be resolved, or or at least claims with the title insurance have been possible. But I worry that you know title insurance wasn't designed to to uh, to be to cover off fraud that occurs this frequently. You know, claims on houses involving houses. Just think of the prices of houses in the GTA or in Hamilton. You know, those are big big dollar amounts and you can mm-hmm. easily make an insurance system crumble if if you suddenly have an explosion of claims and if we don't have title insurance anymore a lot of people are going to find it much more difficult to protect their uh, their interests that's why we buy insurance to protect ourselves against things that you know are hard to hard to keep track of individually
0: the story I saw in the Toronto Star about this uh, indicated that, you know, once they they, they, they do the scam and, and the deal is done, uh, they very quickly, they, they move on. I mean, they apparently, I guess they exchange the money into gold bullion or, or cryptocurrency or something, and they're gone. It it, it sort of indicates that this is a, a much larger scale than we might have thought. This is not just a bunch of local guys that are, are trying to perform a scam. They, I guess, go from, you know, area to area. uh I guess milk it while they can and then move on and go someplace else and start all over again.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's a sort of... Uh- a common a common thing we see the same thing we saw also in in the early days of telemarketing and so on. You know they mm-hmm. they target a certain area or a certain subgroup of people and then once people are on to them they change very quickly and of course these operations can can often shift very fast and and are very mobile. Uh, I, I do think there's a there's a larger coordination problem. Those things were, have been reported already in the media that you know this is kind of a new fraud and and it's maybe falling between the cracks of enforcement because it it's not clear you know. Who, who, could, who could provide oversight or maybe some prevention uh, ahead of time. But it, I, I do hope that the various enforcement agencies who look at these kinds of things uh, can try to coordinate better. And there's probably an international component to this in, in terms of, you know, moving money and, mm-hmm. and fraud, uh, be, you know, facilitating the movement of, of large amounts of money out of countries, uh, you know, that requires uh, cooperation and, and um attention but the the sad thing is unfortunately that usually once the money's gone you never see it again so you have to hope you have insurance it's it's actually pretty difficult to to get it back uh, particularly since money can be converted into other things that just sort of disappear off the grid so we have an enforcement problem exactly. too even if you could find the fraudster if the money's gone it's gone
0: well, as we get more stories about this too, I hate to think of what's going to happen to the premiums for that kind of insurance too. But I guess that's another story for another day. Professor, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate the conversation.
1: Thank you. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Bye.
0: As it was for me too. That's uh, Professor Jennifer Quaid uh, from uh, Civil Law and University of Ottawa.